Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me tonight. You're listening to Mystery at Midnight, Episode 1, The Unsolved Murder of Doug Davis. My name is Madeline, and tonight I'll be deep diving into an unsolved true crime case out of the city I currently live in, which is Ashtabula, Ohio. Tonight's episode is the first of two episodes on the Doug Davis case. In this first episode, I'll focus on what we know about the alleged kidnapping of 15-year-old Doug Davis in August of 1976, while the second episode will focus on the investigation after Doug's skeletal remains were found in March of 1977. Let me start off by telling you a little bit about Ashtabula and explain to you how I came to discover the Doug Davis case. When I decided to create this podcast, I knew I wanted to feature an unsolved case local to me as my first episode. I've lived in Northeast Ohio my entire life, and there have been many unsolved cases here that have received national attention. However, I really wanted to find an unsolved case that I had never heard of, and ideally one that most other people hadn't heard of either. It can be hard to find a case that hasn't gotten a ton of coverage, and also has enough info publicly available to actually do a deep dive, especially when focusing on a small town in Ohio. If you're not familiar with the state of Ohio, Ashtabula County is the northeasternmost county in the state, with Lake Erie bordering the north and the state of Pennsylvania to the east. Ashtabula County contains Ashtabula City, which is where our story tonight takes place. Ashtabula City's population peaked in the late 60s at around 24,000 people and has steadily declined since then. The county itself is mostly rural with a lot of wineries, beautiful covered bridges, I think we have 19 of those, and endless country roads that I really enjoy driving a little too fast down. Its main micropolitan area, Ashtabula City, has always been the most populated area in the county, with the typical problems that seem to come with that. I've only lived in Ashtabula about four years now, and I grew up about a half hour away from here and honestly never came out this way until I moved here. Growing up, I just remember seeing highway signs for Ashtabula and I remember being self-conscious because I couldn't pronounce it right for the longest time. Most people I know kind of shit on Ashtabula, honestly, but I love living here and I dread it every time I have to drive to Lake County for something. I started looking for my first case by doing what most people do when they look for something these days. I googled it. I think I started googling missing people in Ohio and I found myself on the Ohio Attorney General's website where you can search unsolved homicides and missing person reports by name, location, or keyword. But I didn't find Doug's case on that website. In fact, at the time I initially searched in November of 2021, there was only one case that popped up for Ashtabula. That was the May 1991 disappearance of a woman named Deborah Arbonitas. I couldn't find much about Deborah online, so I ended up making a post about her on a Facebook group called Growing Up in Ashtabula to see if any locals on there remembered her story. I concluded my Facebook post by telling others that they were free to message me about any other unsolved crimes in Ashtabula. Within hours, I had received a couple dozen messages, some relating to Deborah and a lot more about unsolved crimes that I'd never heard of, some of which were even older than Deborah's case. One of these messages really caught my attention. That was a message from a woman named Darla Davis. Darla is the youngest sibling in the Davis family, and she was barely wrapping up her elementary school days when her older brother Douglas disappeared. I'm going to go ahead and read you the first few messages that Darla and I exchanged over Facebook 
because I feel like Darla gives a good introduction to her brother's case and she sums up not only the situation, but how her family feels about not having solid answers to the brother's death 45 years later. On November 7th, 2021, Darla writes, Douglas Elliott Davis. He was my brother and went missing from Ashtabula, Ohio around 1976. His partial remains were found in a suitcase floating in the river at the Gulf. I was in 5th or 6th grade at Chestnut Elementary when it happened. I hired a PI when I was in my 20s and found some interesting and compelling evidence of a cover-up in the PD, but didn't have enough money to keep the investigation going. Would love some closure for my family. Darla Davis I responded a short time later saying, Hi Darla, I'm so sorry to hear about your shocking loss at such a young age. I would love to talk further about your brother and hear whatever you have to say. Are you still local to the area? I tried doing some digging online but could find even less about Doug than I found about Deborah. I didn't end up hearing back from Darla that night, so a couple days later I sent a follow-up message. Hi Darla, I just wanted to reach out again and see if you would like to talk. The only reference I can find in relation to a crime similar to what you describe has supposedly been solved and the person identified as the deceased was not your brother. Is there any other info you can give me? This time I received a response from Darla the next morning and here's what she told me. This message was from November 10th, 2021. Madeline, I apologize for not responding sooner. I do not live in the area any longer. I moved away in 1984. I still have family in the area though. I have info that is tucked away in my storage area that I will need to get out to have references to speak with you about. I'm getting ready for work so I will need to look for the folders when I get home this evening. I will reach out to you again. The Ashtabula PD did try to, years later, say the case was closed when they had someone who had been arrested for a DUI supposedly provide info about a party where Doug overdosed and others panicked and he passed. But his skeletal remains were found in chopped up pieces in a suitcase in the Gulf. And my mom had received a ransom phone call when Doug first was reported missing and the FBI was investigating. There was a local guy, Perry McNutt, that is very involved in the whole story as well, and much of the info the private investigator I hired pointed to his involvement in either cover-ups done by the APD or complete incompetence. But there are still no answers to how or why my brother was killed, and most importantly, who killed him. The APD never even contacted my parents when they supposedly solved the crime. The PI I hired was the one who informed us that they had closed the case. The PI had spoke with several people involved with finding the suitcase or knew the people that found it. They all knew Perry McNutt and were all afraid to talk. I'm sorry I'm rambling. I have been pushing this whole thing back in my mind for so many years that I forget many things until I start allowing myself to think about them again. My brother was just a teenager. Someone chopped him up and put him in a suitcase and threw him into the Ashtabula River. No one has ever had to answer to that crime. My family has never had an answer to the loss of our loved one. She followed that up with another message that said, I'm sending a few photos of the police report filed on the initial finding of Doug's skeletal remains in the suitcase and of the initial statement of the witness who found the remains. Also, a letter from the attorney and investigator I had hired in 1994 to look into the case. I have a ton more. I just wanted to start with these and see if you are still interested or if it's not really a case you want to pursue. So Darla sends me eight photos containing the information she just described. And at this point, I'm unaware of how much info Darla really has. 
but just these eight pages give me so much to expand on and yet so many more questions. I spent the next few days poring over these pages, plugging the various names mentioned into different search engines, attempting to find anyone else who could give me more details. I reached out to several Facebook accounts of people mentioned in the report Darla had sent me, but I wasn't getting a response from anyone. I had sent Darla a few more messages, and after attaining a newspapers.com subscription, I was finally able to locate some old news articles about her brother, which I ended up sending her as well. But a week or so goes by with no additional info from Darla. Keep in mind, though, that this is all going down as we're entering the holiday season, and this was obviously something that was unexpected for Darla. I don't believe that she was searching for someone to create something like this, and it took about another month for me to get the full case file from her. In my impatience during that time, I used some of the info I had gathered from the first eight pages and made another Facebook post, this time on a couple different Astrobula Facebook groups. I even went so far as to make a marketplace post advertising my search for information on the case. This garnered an even larger response than the first post, and seemingly endless messages detailing unsolved Ashtabula crimes flooded my inbox. There was a lot of interest in Doug's case as well, and it was obvious from the messages I was receiving that this was something that hadn't been forgotten by many who were alive at the time. However, there seemed to be a lot of confusion as to whether the investigation into Doug's death ever came to a conclusion. It seemed to most people that the case just kind of fell off the face of the earth like Doug Davis did on August 12, 1976, with no real answers, just local rumors. At the center of most of these rumors was a local man which Darla had already introduced me to in her messages named Perry McNutt. I had specifically left his name out of any of my online posts because I wanted to see if someone else would bring him up, and many people did. I would come to find out after attaining the full file in Darla's possession that Perry McNutt was described in 1976 by the Davis family as Doug's best friend. Despite an obvious age difference, Doug being 15 and Perry 22, Doug was said to spend a lot of his time with Perry, often even spending the night at his house that Perry shared with his wife, Diane. Not only that, but Perry was the last reported person to see Doug Davis alive. According to Perry, they parted ways after looking at cars together at Tim Brown Chevrolet on Main Avenue on the afternoon of August 12th. Now this is where I'm going to start heavily referencing, and in some cases reading word-for-word police reports from the file attained by Darla. This file I speak of mostly consists of two main parts. A 26-page report from the PI in 1994 that features interviews with the Davis family, along with a couple other people related to the case. It also includes the 94-page coroner's report that the PI was able to attain on a trip to Ashtabula, where he spoke to Dr. Robert Malinowski. Malinowski was the coroner both in 1994 and in 1977 when Doug's remains were discovered. After reading this file in its entirety several times over, it's my conclusion that all the police reports contained were part of the coroner's report, and in all likelihood are not the complete police files for this case. In my own research, I've learned that because of Ohio record retention laws, this file is all that remains of the Doug Davis investigation. And if it weren't for Darla hiring the PI in 94, we wouldn't have this information today, which would pretty much make this episode impossible to make. 
Let's continue by talking about who Doug Davis was as a person and what was happening in his life just prior to when he went missing. Doug Davis was born Elliot Douglas Alvord on October 4, 1960 to Emily and Eldon Alvord. Emily and Eldon would later divorce and Emily would go on to marry a man named Robert Davis on November 21, 1964, and he would adopt her children. Doug had four siblings, Diane, David, Deborah, and Darla. According to Darla, anyone who knew Elliot personally called him Doug, so that's how I'm going to refer to him for the remainder of this episode. However, when I read some of the police reports word for word, they will call him Elliot, so I needed to make you aware of that. Elliot is Doug. His biological father, Eldon Alvord, was still a part of Doug's life. Eldon worked for North American Van Lines as a long-haul trucker, and he maintained a residence in Ashtabula City on Michigan Avenue in 1976. A week prior to Doug's disappearance, he had returned from a three-week trip with his father out to Wyoming and the West Coast in his truck, which was one of many trips like that Doug had taken with his father. I don't know much more about Eldon, and he is scarcely mentioned again in police reports, other than Emily stating to police that there were no problems with Eldon as far as Doug was concerned. Though Doug didn't seem to like school very much and was often truant, he did have an interest in working on vehicles. David Davis, his elder brother, mentions in his interview with the PI that one of the reasons Doug hung around Perry a lot despite Perry being an adult, was because Perry worked at a gas station and would let Doug work on cars and even drive them. Cars are obviously a huge interest to a lot of teenagers today, but they were especially popular in the 70s during muscle car mania. It's unclear what exactly Perry's occupation was, but gas stations in the 70s often functioned as full-service stations as well, where you could get various things done to your vehicle. So it's not really, you know, unfeasible that he may have allowed Doug to hang around and help him with tasks if he was working there. In more than one interview, David Davis also mentions that while he did know his brother smoked cannabis, even smoking it with him and Perry on more than one occasion, he didn't know of Doug to do any other drugs. And while I don't have the full police file as mentioned, I do have almost two dozen reports from both the sheriff's office and Ashtabula Police Department combined. Not one of those reports ever mentions Doug being involved with other drugs. This is important because the main story that the Ashtabula PD seemed to latch on to later involves Doug not only using other drugs, but being so reckless as to consume what they referred to as a fruit salad mixed with Jack Daniels. If you aren't familiar with that term, fruit salad, it references taking a handful of random pills from a bowl, oftentimes washing them down with liquor in an effort to elicit some type of high. These pills can be prescription pills or even just over-the-counter medicine. The term fruit salad is only used once by Emily in her interview with the private investigator. During that interview, Emily states that's what the police told her a few years prior to the PI interview. So I'm thinking that would mean sometime in the mid to late 80s, possibly very early 90s. We'll dig deeper into that in our second episode. By all accounts, Doug was just your average teenager growing up in the 70s. He did have a small juvenile record, mostly for a couple petty thefts. However, in November of 1975, less than a year before he vanishes, Doug was reported as a runaway to the APD by his parents. 
It's believed that he hopped a train and rode it out to Cleveland where he spent a few days before returning home on his own, but the details of that trip and what Doug was doing or who he was staying with are completely unknown to me. Another big unknown to me is when exactly Perry McNutt came into Doug's life. Darla was very young at the time and doesn't recall a lot of those details. While there are three other Davis siblings, I unfortunately have not been able to speak with anyone in the Davis family other than Darla about this case. Now, if you remember, Darla mentioned in her initial messages to me that her parents received a ransom phone call after Doug disappeared. That part of the investigation is really what I have the least amount of information on, but we do have a handful of pages, including the initial kidnapping complaint filed by Emily and Robert. So let me start off by just reading that complaint to you word for word, because it's only a page long anyway. Investigative Statement of Sergeant Timothy Trask, August 13th, 1976. Reference Complaint Number 76-2678. Possible kidnapping. At 12.28 hours on August 13, 1976, Robert and Emily Davis came to the station and reported that they have just received a ransom call. Mr. and Mrs. Davis were taken into the captain's office and an investigation was started by Sergeant Trask. I was told that about 12.25 p.m. August 13, 1976, Mrs. Davis answered the telephone at her home and the mail caller on the other end stated, quote, If you ever want to see your boy alive again, you best come up with $15,000 by Monday morning in small bills and no pigs, end quote. Mrs. Davis asked the caller what was going on and the caller stated, quote, this is a kidnapping lady. Mr. and Mrs. Davis then drove immediately to the police station. The boy in question is their son, Elliot Douglas Davis, age 15, five foot seven, medium build, long dark hair. Elliot was last seen about 11 a.m., August 12, 1976, walking down West 53rd Street toward Chestnut Ave with one Perry McNutt of Fort Ave. David Davis, age 17, brother to Elliot, told his mother that Perry and Elliot walked by the house around 6 p.m. last night. Mrs. Davis doesn't remember the boys walking by. Sergeant Foglio checked the McNutt residence, but no one was home. Mrs. Davis stated that the caller sounded middle-aged and had possibly a hillbilly-type accent. The caller was very calm and precise. She heard no background noises of any kind coming from the male caller's end of the telephone conversation. Elliot has been adopted by Mr. Davis some time ago, and his real father is Eldon Albert of Michigan Ave. He drives truck for North American Van Lines and had taken Elliot with him for three weeks on one of his runs out to Wyoming and the West Coast. Mrs. Davis stated that there is not any problem with her ex-husband as far as Elliot goes. Elliot stated that he wasn't particularly that impressed with the trip out west. Mr. Davis did tell me that Perry McNutt told him that he wanted to buy a car. Possibly the McNutt boy may be behind this alleged kidnapping. Mr. and Mrs. Davis were sent back to the house and told if the mail caller should call back to contact us right away. They were also advised to get as much information from the caller as possible and to talk to their son if he is really with this alleged kidnapper. Signed, Sergeant Timothy Trask. And then right after that, at the very bottom of the page, there's another notation labeled 1430 hours. I called the Painesville office and advised Special Agent Bob Alvord of the FBI. Agent Alvord stated that since a ransom demand had been made, that this call would be treated as real until notified different. He'll notify Cleveland office and Painesville office. And that notation is signed by Thomas Broad. 
Now, as we see with that notation by Thomas Broad at the end of the kidnapping complaint, the FBI gets involved pretty much from the get-go, which is kind of insane to me considering it appears the Davis family had no idea Doug was technically missing at all until the supposed kidnapper called their house. Honestly, it seems to me as though they kind of shot themselves in the foot there because with Doug's history of running away, the PD more than likely would have gone that route with the investigation if it wasn't for this phone call. I mean, it was only 11am on a Saturday morning towards the end of summer, and by all accounts, it doesn't sound like it was unusual for Doug to spend the night at a friend's house. It really makes you wonder how the case would have been treated if this ransom call was never made. Another odd thing about this call that you may have noticed is that there are no further instructions on how to exchange the ransom for Doug. The caller only states that they need to come up with the money by Monday morning. This is obviously a red flag that only grows larger as Monday comes and goes with no follow-up call from the kidnapper. So even though there was this ransom call... The Ashtabula Police Department did inquire with a friend of Doug's that had left for Texas with his family the same Saturday morning that the Davis family received the ransom call. They apparently thought he may have left with them without telling anyone. The friend in question is Robert Powers, and Robert was one of the few people mentioned in these reports that I was able to get in touch with over Facebook. I'm going to get more into that conversation with Robert in the second episode, but as you can probably guess, Doug wasn't in Texas. There is a brief report by Sergeant Joe Foglio of the Ashtabula Police Department on August 16th that references this call to Bob to verify that Doug isn't with him. I'm going to go ahead and read this as well because this report although short, contains a lot of other information, including the only statement we have about Perry McNutt during this time. Investigation Report Sergeant Joe Foglio, Reference to Davis Kidnapping, 81676. After learning that a friend of Davis had left for Texas last Saturday morning, Robert Powers, I had Powers' sister, Mrs. Munger, call Powers in Texas. I talked with him and he stated that he has not seen Davis since two days before he left for Texas. Powers is in Texas with his mother. I also talked with Perry McNutt for Av and his wife. They both stated that they are still trying to locate Doug for us. I had learned earlier that Perry McNutt was in Cleveland this a.m. I also interviewed a Danny Baldwin, 1310 Perryville Place. He states that he has not seen Doug since last week. He also gave me a name of Mona Powell, who is supposed to be a real close friend of Doug's. Baldwin did contact her, and she advised Baldwin that she has not seen Doug for some time as she had broken up with him. I attempted to contact her myself, but she was not at home. I also contacted Dave at Clark Gas Station, Main Ave, a heavy hangout of Doug's. Dave, the manager, advised that Doug may be in Cleveland around the train station or the flats. Cleveland PD notified to look for him. FBI also advised of what was happening. Names and phone numbers also given for their records. Contacted Doug's real father, Mr. Alvord. He advises that although Doug took long trips with him, he still doesn't know where he would go if he ran away. Dan Baldwin is going to contact all the close friends of Doug's, then get back to me. Also interviewed Atoma Cooper and her sister, Pam, from Fort Ave. Friends of Doug's, and they have not seen him for quite some time. So the first thing I wanted to focus on in that report was the fact that Foglio felt the need to mention that Perry was in Cleveland that morning. 
Then there's another reference to Doug possibly being in Cleveland by a person named Dave who manages Clark Gas Station on Main Ave, which is said to be, in the report, a heavy hangout of Doug's. It doesn't say specifically in any reports if this is the gas station that Perry supposedly worked at, but one might assume. It's not blatant, but it kind of feels to me as if the APD at this point thinks there is still a possibility that Doug has run off to Cleveland again, despite the ransom call. As far as the kidnapping reports for Doug go, I only have two more documents to share with you. One is another report signed by Tom Broad in reference to another missing teen that somehow is connected to Doug's neighbor, though the report doesn't make it clear how. This report is dated August 21st, 1976, and says the following. APD complaint number 76-2678, kidnapping investigation, Elliot Douglas Davis. Report of Thomas Broad, reference Ray Bobbitt. 12 noon. Guy and Barbara Orth, 300 West 53rd Street, no phone, came to APD and reported that last night, about 10.30 p.m., they had a visitor, Ray Bobbitt, who was attempting to locate Jimmy Luther, age 17. Along with Ray was Chris Fenton, who stayed in the car and did not come to the door. The reason for looking for Jimmy Luther is that Luther is a very close friend of Freddie Fenton, age 17. Freddie Fenton disappeared Thursday, August 12th, and has not been heard of since this time. It was believed that if Jimmy Luther was found, that then Freddie Fenton could be located. Freddie Fenton used to be a neighbor of Perry McNutt, and they are friends. So it appears that Perry McNutt is friends with Freddie Fenton and Elliot D. Davis. Freddie Fenton is close to Jimmy Luther. Fenton appears to be close to Ray Bobbitt. Signed, Tom Broad. In my opinion, this report is even more bizarre and vague than the last one. It's unclear how anyone mentioned know each other or what their exact relation is. It's not stated why Ray Bobbitt came to the Orth residence thinking that he might find Jimmy Luther or Freddie Fenton there. When I initially recorded this episode, I provided a copy to Darla for her to listen to before anyone else, and she informed me that the Orth family had several teenage daughters living at home at the time, and they more than likely were connected to Jimmy and Freddie. When I researched this the first time, I only found a record for a son named Guy Orth who was two at the time. So I came back and revised this portion of the podcast last minute because I actually came to a realization last night while talking to a member of the Orth family. I realized that one of the members of the Orth family had reached out to me when I first posted about this case on Facebook. I just didn't make the connection at that time. According to this family member, they believe that one of the Orth sisters may have had a romantic connection to Perry McNutt and may know something or even have been involved in the kidnapping scheme. I'm not going to bring up this person's name, but I have attempted to make contact with almost all of the Orth children. So if you're listening and you're a member of the Orth family, please feel free to reach out to me if you'd like to talk about the case either on or off the record. Another local with connections to the family told me that they believe that Ray Bobbitt and the Orths were friends, but I still can't find the connection to the Fentons or anyone who actually remembers a Chris or Freddie Fenton. I don't know what ever became of Freddie or if he really was Perry McNutt's neighbor at any point. 
I also don't have any reports that verify whether police ever followed up with Ray Bobbitt. No one in this report, including any members of the Orth family, are ever mentioned in subsequent reports, and any talk about a romantic connection to Perry is complete hearsay until I get a confirmation from that person directly. This final page in reference to the kidnapping I saved for last because it references not only the first ransom call, but also the second. That's right, there was a second ransom call. As we know, the FBI immediately started investigating this as a serious kidnapping when the Davises reported the first call. They did end up putting a wiretap on the Davis family home for a couple of months, waiting for another phone call. Finally, they gave up, and with the assumption a second call wasn't coming, they removed the wiretap. However, on November 5th, 1976, Emily Davis answers the phone, and an unknown male caller asks her, quote, are you going to pay for the safe return of Doug, or do we have to take another one? End quote. Emily states in her police report that she only has a 10-year-old daughter who goes to Chestnut Street School, and she's afraid she will be kidnapped. That daughter was Darla. I mean, this sounds like every parent's absolute worst nightmare. Not only are you being told your son is kidnapped, but now you're being tormented by these sporadic ransom demands and threats that they're going to take another child of yours. Again, this demand doesn't come with any specific instructions on how to follow through with the ransom, and Emily doesn't actually get any confirmation that Doug is being held by this person. One thing I wanted to note here is that the caller apparently uses the word we as opposed to I, implying that there is more than one person involved in this kidnapping scheme. And as we'll learn in the next episode, investigators later find strong evidence that Doug is already dead at the time the second ransom call is placed. So for me, the question now becomes, why make the second phone call nearly three months later if Doug was already deceased, and especially with no attempt to actually collect the ransom? My only guess is that maybe at this point, pressure was being put on a suspect in the case, and this was yet another means of distraction. I do have a few newspaper articles here I'd like to read that were written mostly after the remains in the suitcase were identified as Doug. Let me start off with this article that I found in the Marion Star on April 9th, 1977. The article is titled, Boy's Body Recovered. A laborer at a local plastics firm told police he received a $15,000 ransom demand after his 15-year-old son vanished last summer. But the ransom demand never was followed up, Robert Davis said, and no trace of his son, Elliot, turned up until last week when the boy's body was found in a suitcase in the Ashtabula River. The body was identified Friday from dental records. The father said Elliot, who had run away from home previously, walked away August 12th. The following day, Davis said he got an anonymous telephone call from a man with a southern accent who told him, quote, If you want your son back, I want $15,000 in small bills. End quote. Police and the FBI investigated, but the investigation lapsed when no further demands were received immediately and no trace was found of the boy, Detective Alex Lambros said Friday. Police said a second ransom call came nearly three months later, but again, nothing more was heard from the purported kidnapper. Police said they were unable to explain the demands for money, noting that Davis had no money to pay any such ransom. Lambros said police had no clues and a friend with whom Elliot had last been seen had been questioned and would be questioned again. Now that article touched on one of the main things I had been thinking about in regard to the ransom demand, 
and that was whether or not the Davis family could even afford such a ransom. They had five kids and were just your average working-class family. According to an inflation calculator, $15,000 in 1976 is equivalent to roughly $75,000 today. Robert Davis worked at a local plastics factory, and Emily was a paper courier, and the APD blatantly state in this article that they wouldn't be able to pay such a ransom. But that's not entirely true. There was one Davis family member who had recently come into a large sum of money, and this was common knowledge in the Davis household. That family member was Doug's eldest sister, Diane, and she was already married and living with her husband, Roy Knapp, at the time of Doug's disappearance. The report in question is actually from the Ashtabula Sheriff's Department, who don't really seem that involved in this case until Doug's body is found. I'm going to go ahead and read the report, and then we'll pick it apart. So this is a supplement report by Detective Maynard and Detective Brown of the Ashtabula County Sheriff's Department. The report is dated Friday, April 15th, 1977. 10.39 hours. Detective Maynard and I met with Roy Wesley Knapp of State Route 167, just west of State Route 7 on the north side of the road. Roy and his wife, Edie Diane Knapp, whom have been married for two and a half years, were found to be the inheritors of some $29,000 cash. We had learned from Tom Munger that the above couple were the ones who could provide us with all the necessary information in reference to the inheritance of which we recently learned about. Roy told us of a so-called uncle or distant relative on his father's side from whom the inheritance was acquired. Fred Hudson, who is deceased and a former resident of the Ashtabula area, was a ship captain on the Great Lakes. The total inheritance, which was left to numerous members of the Hudson's family, amounted to $300,000. In 1974, Roy was notified that at the age of 21 years, he would be eligible for the $29,000 from the Ashtabula County Savings and Loan Company. On August 2, 1976, Roy was notified by the loan company that the policy had reached maturity and that he could obtain his share. Roy also commented on the fact he had received seven or $8,000 in 1974 from a grandfather's death. Through our questioning, Roy and Diane indicated to us that it was general knowledge in the family that the money was being received, but she did not think it was made out to be any big deal. Diane commented she had offered her mother, Mrs. Davis, to help with the ransom, but she rejected any such aid. Diane termed Elliot Doug Davis as a troublemaker in short. They could not offer any further information other than the fact they did know Elliot spent most of his time with Perry McNutt. So I just wanted to reiterate that that report was written about two weeks after Doug's body is discovered and identified. I find it odd right off the bat that sheriff's detectives say that they just learned about this inheritance from someone named Tom Munger. They don't make it clear in this report who Tom Munger is or why he's the one relaying this information to the sheriff's department instead of the Davis family. But as it turns out, Tom Munger is mentioned again briefly in a different report by coroner's investigator Detective Brammer. We'll dive into the rest of the details of that report later, but part of the report I want to mention now shares an interview with Emily and Robert after Doug's remains were identified, 
In this interview, they once again talk about Perry being Doug's best friend, but they also mention a couple of other friends that police should speak with, a Tom Munger of West 53rd Street and Jerry Sparks of Chestnut Street. So that right there, the simple fact that Tom Munger, a friend of Doug's, was the one to bring this up to sheriff's investigators proves that people outside of the Davis family were aware that they were receiving this money. The last name Munger was also mentioned in Foglio's report that we read on Robert Powers, where he says he speaks to Robert's sister, Mrs. Munger, but I'm not sure if there is any relation there. Another thing of note was the fact that the Knapps received this money less than two weeks prior to Doug's kidnapping, but they were aware they would be receiving this as early as 1974. So according to the time timeline we've established, on August 2nd, Doug would have been out of town on a trip with his father when this money was finally made available. Diane also mentions that she offered to help her mother with the ransom demands, but Emily declined. So why weren't the police aware of the possibility that the Davis family could have paid the ransom had further instructions been given? I mean, maybe the family was unaware that Doug or anyone else had told people outside the family that the money existed? Right now, I just don't know. I think it's a strange oversight, though it's hard to judge anyone in this type of situation, especially with reports that are so vague. But I mean, if they ask Robert or Emily, do you have the money to pay this ransom? Technically, no, they don't have the money, but their daughter does and she offered it. I would just think that this large of a windfall in the immediate family would seem like an obvious thing worth mentioning to police, especially since it happens so close to Doug's disappearance. Another possibility, of course, is that the APD who were the primary investigative department on the case during the kidnapping did know this information and either purposefully or accidentally omitted it when bringing the sheriff's office up to date on the investigation. As I'll show you when we get further into these reports, there are other examples of a lack of communication and some tension between these two agencies throughout this investigation. It is worth mentioning, however, that the FBI also brought sheriff's detectives up to date on the status of the case after Doug's remains were found, so it seems that they were also unaware of this or also purposefully withheld it. You might be asking why they would withhold something like that, but there's oftentimes, even to this day, a lot of competition amongst departments, especially when jurisdiction of the crime is in question, and it was, which is why the sheriff's office was involved to begin with. Now, as we already know, the APD tells the family later on that Doug overdosed and was disposed of afterward, but they don't come forward with that story until years after Doug's death. And even though Doug's death certificate officially lists his cause of death as unknown, I'm going to read you an article that shows that at least the sheriff's office at one point did believe he was murdered. I don't have the full citation for this article right now. I think it was one that was sent to me by the local library, so I will definitely have the full citation at the beginning of the next episode. The article is titled, Murder Suspected in Skeleton Case. Murder is suspected in the death last year of Ashtabula City youth Elliot Douglas Davis, Ashtabula County Sheriff Bill Johnston said today. Ashtabula City Detective Captain Alex Lambros said detectives are to question possible suspects in the case today. The Davis youth, 15, disappeared from his home at 305 West 53rd Street, on the morning of August 12, 1976. He was not seen again until March 30th when two teenagers found his skeletal remains in a suitcase in the Ashtabula River Gulf. The skeleton was identified as that of Davis through dental records. 
Complicating the bizarre case was the possibility of kidnapping. The boy's mother, Mrs. Emily Davis, said she received a telephoned ransom call on August 13th, another on November 5th. The caller demanded $15,000 for the return of the boy, but did not give any instructions for payment. Investigation at the time by police and the FBI turned up no leads. City police and the sheriff's department are conducting a joint investigation of the case. Each department has assigned a detective to the case full-time. Sheriff Johnson said today he believes the Davis death was murder. He said investigators have a particular suspect in mind and are continuing investigative efforts today. Johnston said it has not yet been determined where the alleged murder took place. Motive for the murder is not yet known, he added. Only one person, as far as we know, is believed involved in the murder, Johnston said. The two law agencies are cooperating in the investigation because it is not yet known in which jurisdiction the murder took place. So guys, I think I'm going to leave it at that tonight. That's all I have for you in regard to the kidnapping portion of the investigation. I have a ton of information left to share with you about what happens after Doug's remains are found and why I believe Sheriff Johnston was right when he suspected murder in this case. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find out what happens next, please like, subscribe, and share with your true crime-loving friends. Leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts so far. It really does help the algorithm get Doug's story out there. Episode 2 will drop next week, and we'll pick up with the witness statement from the siblings who find Doug's body in the Ashtabula River. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>